surviving the long disaster is not about preparing for everything as much as it is about preparing to work with others to survive together. And in that preparation, if you're doing it right, there is an incredible joy. There is an incredible collective peak state that you have to go through. You have to meet lots of different people and try lots of different things and fail and keep failing and keep going through that heartbreak of friendships gained and friendships lost to find the people once you've found them you experience that joy every time you get together. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. We explore the fields of neuroscience, integrative medicine, anthropology, optimal psychology, systems thinking, and existential risk. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Let's do the hellos, how are you? So I want to welcome you, Nick, uh, you know, um, one of the leads for the transnational organization Burners Without Borders, a, a you know, a, somebody who has rolled up their sleeves and walked their talk and has also been, he also is the author of uh, an essay called The Long Disaster. And, and that is what I would, I mean, and all related topics is what we're here to discuss today. Um, and for anybody that has been following this podcast, Homegrown Humans, or our work at the Flow Genome Project or anything I've written over time, you may well remember from Stealing Fire, uh, introducing Burning Man as a quote unquote sandbox for the future, as a place where people were coming and experimenting and developing. And one of the main points I wanted to make out of that entire community and everything that happens there um, was to spotlight Burners Without Borders. Um, because for me, the temple and the art and Burners Without Borders, along with Black Rock Solar and a kind of a host of Confederate you know, organizations, <clears throat> that is what redeems the party. That is what redeems the extravagant you know, wastefulness and, and indulgence of that thing and actually renders it, um, you know, sort of essential or central to finding our way forward. And, and Nick, you along with Chris Breedlove and, and, and a host of others um, have been really carrying that work forward. So um, without further ado, um, welcome to Homegrown Humans and super psyched to jump into the conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm super psyched to be here too. Uh, the, you've had some amazing guests and absolutely stunning conversations as a part of this podcast. I've enjoyed listening to it and, and re-listening to a lot of these conversations and I'm thrilled and honored to be here. Yeah. Well, and, and, and actually you represent an inflection point, um, which is we kind of did this, we did this podcast in chat. The first chapter, you know, sort of, I don't know what it was, maybe a dozen guests um, in conjunction with the launch of the book, Recapture the Rapture this year. And those were all fundamentally kind of, you know, authors, thinkers, academics, TED, that kind of a thing. And it was really, you know, it was, it was wonderful to get to dive in with those people because they were all either featured explicitly in Stealing Fire or Recapture the Rapture. And to me, they were all examples of and exemplars of being a homegrown human, right? Of somebody who has kind of been to the mountaintop, come back down and is now doing the work that matters and really wanted to be able to showcase, hey, look, this isn't abstract. This isn't just a sort of a highfalutin notion or a new, a new you know, sticky meme. These are actually real people doing real stuff in the world. And I knew that 
that the list of people who are simultaneously have a public profile and are doing profound work isn't you know infinite and in fact that's really a tip of the iceberg that some of the most profound most um you know insightful instructive homegrown humans are off the public radar altogether right and are doing their work on the ground um, often without running PR campaign, often without tweeting about it, often without doing any of those elements. And, and I consider the work that you guys have been doing um, in that category. I mean, obviously, anybody who's part of the Burning Man community is probably familiar with your activities. Um, and I, and but, but, you know, on the other hand, right, I think I would, you know, like I, even just in rereading your essay, The Long Disaster, uh, before jumping in today, I was reminded of how many hits I got from it, you know, of like, oh, fuck yes. Like, oh, yes, he's going to fucking talk about this. And oh, yes, he's going to nail that. And honest to God, I mean, how many, do you remember how many words this is? Is it like 2000 words, 1500 words, something? It's it's around there. It's in that, it, it, it's in that weird 2000 word land. Because mm -hmm. anytime you go beyond 2000 words, at least in, in my experience, you're writing five to 10,000 words. Mm -hmm. Anytime you're less than 2,000 words, you're, it's a blog post. It's mm -hmm. not that much more. It's an expanded tweet. Mm -hmm. Before we jump in, I just want to take one sec because we're referring to a lot of stuff and presuming shared knowledge for our listeners, which is, so Burning Man, big giant desert festival in, in the salt flats of Nevada, 50 to anywhere from 25,000 to, you know, 75,000 people come. You cheer, it's self-organizing. It does, it is, a, it is a gifting economy with all sorts of beautiful, immersive, interactive art, crazy ass wild playground, and arguably one of the biggest, one of the largest and most significant transformation engines ever assembled by humans on this planet. There's Kumail in India, there's some other big things that have you know, sort of lineage to them, but you can make a case that in the postmodern age, it is one of the biggest engines for mutating consciousness and culture that we've ever assembled. And Burners Without Borders sprang emergently from that, modeled on Medicine Sans Frontier, right? the Doctors Without Borders, and you guys started establishing, hey, we come out to this wild ass, inhospitable place, build civilization from scratch for a week, strike it, take it away without a, without a trace, and that set of skills right? How do you come up with power, water, sanitation, disposal, organization, kitchens, food, community, consciousness, culture, celebration, art, grieving, all these things are skills and or nutrients that are in even greater need around the world when shit hits the fan, right? And so you guys did, you guys did the hurricanes uh, in the Gulf Coast, you've gone and done earthquakes in Central and South America, you, I think you've dealt, dealt with volcanic eruptions, there's been all sorts of global events that you guys have responded to leveraging many of the skill set and logistics and capacities to get hard shit done in hostile places from this festival environment into you know fundamentally quite often developing world situations that don't have formalized disaster responses and infrastructure and you've been showing up as good-hearted transnational volunteers to help ease the suffering and help bring some kind of humanity back to these crises is that a okay synopsis no that's that's a perfect synopsis i have a lot of and you've hit on a lot of things that i want to hit on as well including the nature of what black rock city is and when you talk about the burning man event most of the time what people are talking about is the construction of black rock city in the black rock desert in nevada and 
as a key understanding point, it's not an event, it's not a festival. It's the construction of a temporary city. It's a Gobekli Tepe for a modern age. And to, to take and a just, just just describe that, right? Okay. So Gobekli Tepe is the oldest known consciously constructed human temple. And it's a bit of an anathema in archaeology that it's a city that it's a settlement. It's a appears to a settlement that suggests it was a permanent settlement at some point that they know was used as a temple that has no evidence of agriculture in that same time period anywhere near it. And this is modern day Turkey, is that right? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's close to the border of Syria, actually, in, in modern day Turkey, in, in an almost equally inhospitable, inhospitable environment to where Black Rock City takes place. It takes place in an alkaline salt flat where there is no visible sign of life and through most of the year is impassable that except for that little bit of august uh, july and august it's it's a lake bed when it snows it's it's a mud and a kind of caked mud that is incredibly difficult and possible to walk through you don't see any signs of mammalian life Wait, on that you, alkaline are, salt are you talking about black rock desert now or are you talking no. about turkey no, I'm talking, I apologize. I'm talking about, I shifted to talking about the Black Rock Desert. I don't know that much about the flora and fauna of Gobekli Tepe, but where I think there's a common link is that they know humans went to Gobekli Tepe periodically to worship, mm-hmm. but it was not, they don't think it was a permanent settlement. Mm, Same yeah. thing with Black Rock City. And I think Black Rock City, just like Gobekli Tepe attracts a certain class of humans. I don't want to call it a tribe. Tribe is perhaps the best word to use, but there is some kind of thread through humanity that links a set of people, which we now call burners, who make the pilgrimage to Black Rock City at the same time of year every year. Now, of course, the past two years, it hasn't happened because of the pandemic, but the class of people that we call burners finds ways to find each other and then finds ways to celebrate what brings them together in community, what natural part about them links them together. And then when we're talking about burners without borders and similar efforts, we activate those communities to do great things in society in ways that are not, in ways that are not easily advertised as being great. <clears throat> True greatness exists in the background. If you've been around long enough, if you've seen a lot of things, a lot of the greatest things are never celebrated, but they happen and they lead to things that are great that are celebrated. And I think one of the beautiful things about burners and burner culture is that it properly celebrates and activates people who are great that you will never hear about and that will be lost to history. Mm-hmm. But I think your work with Burners Without Borders is actually unpacking an even, an even bigger and more inclusive 
expression of catharsis, which is, let's say I have an ecstatic community. So I've got the ecstasis and I've got the communitas online, transformational festivals, right? You come out there, you blow out the pipes, you have a yeehaw good time, right? With the best sex, you know, sex, drugs, and music you can get your mitts on, right? To help juice all of that to happen. But then what you guys have been doing is not just using this for individual healing, the individual catharsis, you've been using this to expand your sphere of concern to include healing that is necessary for people who weren't present for the fun stuff, right? And some of that connection, the teamwork, the camaraderie, the competence, the skill building, right? Of building and, and creating those spaces out to the least of our brothers and sisters. So, so talk, talk to us about that. Like how, what was that? Cause I mean, obviously like everybody who's ever run a Burning Man camp is like, there's always a fuck ton more people that show up for the party part, the ecstasis, than show up for setting it up or cleaning it up. Right. So there's this huge asymmetry between who's drawn to the fun part versus who's drawn to the work. And not only do you guys hang around for the work of setting up and strike, right? But you then take it out and do a whole bunch more work that virtually nobody else hangs around for. So talk to us about that. How, how, how did that happen for you guys as, as a core? And then how do you sort for or screen or put out a, because obviously there's an indefinite amount of love and help that's needed out there in the world. How are you guys finding people who align with that message and that promise uh, to kind of grow the impact of what you're doing? The short answer to that direct question is that those people will show up. <laughs> nice. Burners without borders. That and that's that's this is the critical thing is burners without borders does not recruit. Burners without borders does not organize in the external. Burners Without Borders organizes in the internal. So to take uh, Doctors Without Borders, as, as you alluded to earlier, Doctors Without Borders traditionally recruits doctors. They give them training and then they send them out into the world. It, it's not exactly like that, but that's that's the model. Burners Without Borders takes that in reverse. People in communities reach out to Burners Without Borders and Burners Without Borders helps bring those people in those regions together through a lot of, through sometimes very social events, through just introductions, through our theme camp on Playa and just introducing people together and then giving them the toolkits and giving them the resources for them to, and, and the ongoing support, the care and feeding so that they organize in their own communities, build projects, and then when disaster or emergent events strike, the community is already there. The capacity for making do with limited resources is already there. A lot of what burning is, is making do with limited resources. Mm -hmm. And they come together and they do great works as local communities. Now, of course, sometimes people from Burners Without Borders drop into a place. So to take the 27 Mexico City earthquake, for example, I was living in Mexico City at the time. I was just one person. I didn't have a broader disaster response community around me. I ended up becoming 
the volunteer coordinator of the six story office building collapse that was six blocks away from my house because the people in my neighborhood, the people who, who were able to volunteer and who had a certain degree of skills, we all came together in the moment in that community and were working. And we weren't working under existing very set state protocols. We were covering all of the gaps and all of the collisions of those protocols in those spaces. And that's what Burners Without Borders from their very from their origin story during Hurricane Katrina all the way through to what's going on in British Columbia right now, mm. come so, uh, together there, uh, is there in an active, ways. Is there an active group? Uh, I, th- there are definitely burners working there. I, I don't know if they have a name or a collaboration, but there are people, and that's, that's the thing about Burners Without Borders is the people who are working. I know of several people who are working there, none of whom I have permission from them to talk about. Mm-hmm but there's an active burner community in the Vancouver area and they are going to work there. They are not standing idly by waiting for the governments to reopen the roads. They're opening up their storage containers. They're activating those resources. And the resources that you use to go to Black Rock City and do Burning Man Mm -hmm. are a lot of the same resources that you go and do disaster relief with. There's a natural Mm -hmm. alignment there. And yeah. that's, that's the thing behind Burners Without Borders is that it's not about going into a place. It's about preparing you to be ready when you're in your place. It's half permission engine, one quarter toolkit, and one quarter just giving a name to a phenomenon that emerges naturally among burners. Yeah. And I mean, okay, so now there's so many interesting things here. The, the um, one that strikes me is that one of the original stories that I think I heard about uh, Birds Without Borders first response down in Katrina, right? Which was that New Orleans and those kind of places were getting tons of the press and a lot of the FEMA response and that kind of stuff. And there were many, many towns and communities, you know, in the rest of the Gulf, especially, you know, throughout Mississippi as well, that were just completely forgotten. And one of the things that the story that just lodged in my brain was, and you see this in many, many movies, right? Where the elected officials turn out to just be craven, self-interested, incompetent twits in real shit. And then somebody else, usually the Schwarzenegger, you know, Stallone hero, you know, Bruce Willis hero steps in and, and, and runs the day. And in that instance, it was that the mayor shot the bed, couldn't do fuck all. But the guy who owned the hardware store who had a generator, an ice machine and a backhoe right actually became the leader of the community right and you're just like oh yeah that that's basically soft power versus you know org chart power in a civic sense and so one of my one of my questions because this is true for all of us right i mean even brock long the the one of the you know senior uh, fema guys a couple of years ago when there was i think there were two hurricanes there was one in the atlantic one in the gulf at the same time California fires, which are all within the same, you know, two week span kind of thing. And he basically said, Hey, America, you need to stop thinking of FEMA as a 911 disaster relief as a service thing. Like you're kind of like you're on your own and we're politically washing our hands of this, right? Like everybody remembers that, like, you know, Katrina nearly took down George Bush, W, right, from his lackadaisical response. And at this point, they're basically saying, mm, We're just reframing this entire conversation. The federal government is not able to help you. So how does, how, what's your experience been with um, navigating officialdom versus just jumping in to help? 
because um, one of our dear friends was up in BC and this last summer, there were insane wildfires ripping through the interior of BC. They happened to have spent the last 15 years doing a sustainable forestry project. So they, they're responsible for managing some of the most progressive forest management in all of North America. People from a bunch of different countries are now like, what are you guys doing? They've been even helping like climate change transition of their forests. Like, hey, I think interior BC is gonna actually look most like Northern Utah in a few decades. So let's start helping, <coughs> excuse me, kind of midwife our forest there. So great, really smart stuff. And when these fires came and ripped through their valley near Nelson, they instantaneously realized like, oh shit, all the official guys have no idea what's going on. And in fact, the only official responses were to block off their roads and prevent them from getting back to their homes. And then the telephone companies, and I cannot imagine that this happened and that this hasn't created like a civic uproar. The telephone companies flew in and pulled all of their cell phone towers so they wouldn't get burned down, which then collapsed communications. So there were a ton of families, when particularly in that area, like the working class local folks, many of the men were off in the like the tar sands fracking rigs in you know in, in central Canada, left with like you know, mothers and children who now had no cell phones. Like that's what they did. They removed their infrastructure, right? And and the officials log jammed the roads. So that they were having to do like ninja missions in the middle of the night to sneak back up to their homes to change irrigation to dig firewalls to do all this kind of stuff and they ended up saving their community and their home only because they had 15 years like you described 15 years of relationships 15 years of trust and had to do actually had to do massive workarounds from both of the big corporations and the government entities and agencies that were just in over their heads or just looking to cover their own asses. So how do you, how do you trust doing more of what you've been doing going forwards? I'm going to preface all of this by saying that professionally, I'm an accountant. I'm a CPA. <laughs> I've worked okay. in, well, and, and I, I'll walk back. I'll get back there. I hope I'm, I'm going to stick this landing. I started out my career in the treasury department in the community development financial institutions fund, a very small unit of a very large, powerful agency. There's a fundamental difference between ears and hardware store owners. Yeah. Mayors are people who have leaned very hard into the system. They've gone, they've, they did really well in high school. They've gotten their degrees. They've, they know how to handshake. They know how to be really great conversationalists at cocktail parties. And they know have been trained on how to apply very capital intensive solutions to problems that are very quotidian, that are very everyday. They collect taxes and they build streets. Hardware store owners usually are people who, instead of being really great at studying Latin in high school, were in shop class. They mm -hmm. learned how to saw two by fours. They know what a miter saw is. They've broken bandsaw blades. <laughs> They're very hands-on. Mm -hmm. And they work with people who are very hands-on. And they've seen at a ground level when things go wrong. 
and how to fix things when they go wrong. And they're very practiced at fixing small things in series going wrong. So you're dealing with people who have two completely different, not just disciplines, but ways of operating. Hardware store owners are going through the bin of scraps to wedge and write up a thing temporarily that you just need to be level for five minutes. Mayors are thinking in terms of million dollar budgets and funding departments and hiring people who hire people who hire people like the hardware store owner. So when your capital intensive solutions are off the table, mm -hmm. when you can't just pay, and that's, that's the thing, think about budget cycles. Annual, you're thinking about how you're gonna be spending money 18 to 24 months down the line, not 30 minutes to two hours from now. When everything falls apart, hardware store owners know and are practiced at putting it back together, mayors have no idea where to start. Now, occasionally, sometimes you'll have a hardware store owner that got their GED, that went to college, that knows about two by fours and million dollar budgets. And those are, are magical solutions. And, and granted, very successful mayors and very successful hardware store owners have elements of both of those different worlds. But to a start, you have to think about what are the disciplines and what are the environments that both of these sets of people operate in. Mm -hmm. And once you have a good understanding of that, and, and I, I'm saying this because I, I have an understanding of both of those worlds, so I can speak to, to both of them, that uh, once you understand that, and, and again, it's a lot about this true empathy really understanding that the mayor understands budgets more than lumber is part of understanding why mayors fail and hardware store owners succeed. Well, and specifically like budgets, they might take six months out, but the rest is fundraising and reelection. That's the self-perpetuation machine, which is the avoidance right. of or anything bold. And certainly the avoidance of any hard trade-offs within an election cycle period, two to four years, compared to any longer term trade-offs for your constituency that actually will serve them well in the long run, which is exactly, you know, arguably your whole point about creating anti-fragile communities. And, and, and our buddy, Zach Stein, um, who's a Harvard psychologist, he's just made an, you know, an obvious but important distinction, which is middle America, quote unquote, right, is generally below the next skill sets in the real world, right? I know how to change oil, you know, chop firewood, fix a broken pipe, right? Do whatever those things are because quite often, right? Just that simple sense of both self-reliance and lack of excess cash economy in traditional, you know, blue collar communities, right? You know, put up, you know, as a necessity and also as a, you know, a mark of just pride and self-sufficiency was I can fix shit in 3D. I understand how 3D works. If you think of the coastal elites, right? If there's not an app for it, I'm fucking shit out of love when stuff goes sideways because my entire existence, identity, and professional compensation is all above the neck and all dealing in the realm of hyper objects. Like, what do you do? Well, influence brand manager. You're like, what the fuck is that? You know, like, like to say nothing of, uh, you know, a thousand other 
roles, jobs, and responsibilities. And and you know, and I remember watching uh, Yellowstone, which is that um, TV series that's a little bit like a soapy Dallas, but set up in Montana. Kevin Costner's in it. In fact, I just read something in Vanity Fair of like, why is Yellowstone like the most streamed show in the country right now? And no, no one in the chattering classes is writing about it. And the, and the, the thesis of the essay, which I thought was pretty funny, was that it's because it's red meat to the base. It's because it's got MAGA values. Right. It's it's not some kind of lefty, ultra progressive, you know, LGBTQ thing. It's actually like cowboys where men were men and big, big sky and open country. And so so it's actually just been shut out of the kind of literary, you know, chattering classes commentary. But there's an episode where there's a California developer who comes in to kind of build some new fancy golf course resort thing. And he gets dragged to this cowboy bar right by the daughter of you know the kevin costner character and he gets the shit kicked out of him um and she just kind of laughs and then and sort of describes that world to him like you just don't get where you are right this is real people like th this is the cattle that feeds all of the people on the coast this is this is real work this is real people and it's such a and i just got such a strong hit watching that scene of like oh like as much as anything else, beyond the, like the, the literally trumped up culture wars we've been dealing with, right? This divide between I live in 3D and I'm capable and competent here and deserving of dignity and, 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 a, and, a, and a living, you know, and not to have my world eclipsed or actually erased, right? Versus here are these poindexters, you know, with manicures and, and, and fancy shoes, right? Who have no understanding of of anything about the nitty and the gritty um and it just feels like you know us getting back to that right feels like a, a super a critical thing right versus like oh hey a bunch of silicon valley folks are going to go to a camp where we unplug our phones and we play summer camp games and that's getting back to nature you know versus like I and mean, even when we would go like like living in colorado there's tons of telemark skiers and your backcountry skiers and this kind of thing and you drive through these, you know, increasingly lumpy, bumpy, hard ass mountain towns, and you'd see backhoes covered in snow. You'd see tons of snowmobiles, right? You'd see chainsaws and chopping blocks for what, you know, their wood piles, and it would feel a little gritty and it wouldn't feel as groovy as Boulder did, you know, or, or Telluride. And you'd kind of be like, oh, well, here we go. And you realize, oh, fuck, no, these people live here, man. They know exactly how many human calories you have to burn to get something done and you understand why they love internal combustion engines <laughs> you know you understand because they've actually had to dig a ditch by themselves versus get it done with a backhoe they've actually had to get in you know 10 miles into the backcountry to haul back an elk or a deer to feed their family and realize how heavy that fucker is and how helpful a snowmobile is you know versus like oh we're in, you know you know we're, we're in telemarkers and we're going lightly into the earth and so like those kind of divisions have not, not only is there an erosion of skill sets in the kind of, in the um, knowledge worker class, um, but there's also a cultural gap between what's, what skills are, are valued and, and even seen as shared and understood. My dad phrases this as who knows how to change a tire or drive a stick shift? Yes. And you would be surprised. There's, this is, this is a funny story. It's how people were raised. So my, my dad, he said the first car, and this, this was in the early aughts. 
He said, you're going to learn how to drive a stick shift car. And at some point in your life, it's going to become useful. And 16 year old me is like, what, what is like, no, nobody drives a stick shift car except for, you know, the one weird kid, kid in my class who likes to reassemble MGs. That's the <laughs> only person who I could point to who knew how to drive a stick shift car. And it wasn't until 10 years later, I was in Germany and in a situation where th there are no, th there are some automatic, or there were at that time, some automatic transmission cars, but there were no automatic transmission heavy vehicles. Everything from a Sprinter van on up was a stick shift. And I saw myself saying, oh, and not having driven a stick shift car in a decade, I knew that I could drive it and I did drive it. And I was the only person, the only American in my cohort that had that skill. Burning Man gives the, the magical thing about Burning Man and Burner Festivals and Burner Culture is that it forces a lot of those information workers to learn how to drive stick shift vehicles. But not only that, <laughs> it gives them a relatively risk-free way for them to teach themselves how to drive it. Mm -hmm. In the, the DPW of, of Black Rock City, the, the, the Civic Works Department, the, the actually org organization funded group of people the, has- the, the Department of Public Works, right? The so Department like, of Public Works yeah. that just like the Department of Public Works in your city, it, it has essentially the same function, except they're building the entire city and then taking it apart. They're not just managing a fixed infrastructure like the Department of Public Works in, in your and and there, and there's even that cultural divide right between like the small ponies that roll in for the party ready for their Instagram shot at sunset and DPW they're, they're usually on the crusty and honorary side like you fuckwits don't even know that whole that's a whole different phenomenon and as somebody that drives around in a DPW van on Playa, one of my favorite things is Instagram shoot fishing. <laughs> what we, I, I, I'm going to get, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for, for talking about this phenomenon. This is a but, safe space. This is totally. Yeah. It's, I, I, I'm, I'm going to get into trouble when somebody that I know <laughs> listens to it and says, oh, you shouldn't have told the, the muggles about the inst fishing brace. Uh, brace is my, my name on Playa, but one of the things that we'll do is drive our van right in front of, right in the, in the frame of an Instagram shoot and start working on a water main break. <laughs> and then of course you'll, and, and Instagram shoots, like you, people who are just taking selfies is one thing. It's a 90 second affair. They line it up on their phone, take the picture and move on about their day. But there's a whole other class of people who have, six production assistants, three people with reflectors, an electrician, and then the photographer. Jesus. And there's a makeup person in, in the background. And, and they're, they're, they come out at golden hour. Mm -hmm. And what we love to do is just, just drive up right behind them. And of course, the PA is going to come running up to us and say, you're, you're in the frame. You have to move, blah, blah, blah. And we'll say, no, we're working on a water main break. And the production <laughs> We'll then go back to the photographer and say, well, he, he says he's here. He's working on a water main break. And of course, the photographer, depending on how much experience they have, will go, this is Burning Man. There are no water mains. And or 
if, if they're with it, they'll at least say that. And if they say that, we'll move on about our day. But like a healthy pranking that you're just giving a nudge. You're just you're just poking the sparkle pony, you know, just hoping they'll exactly. wake up. But but that leads to another thing in that. I don't think that just because you attend Burning Man or a burner event doesn't make you a burner. At the same time, you may already be a burner, just like the, the line of the Cacophony Society or the line that Burners Without Borders uses. You may already be a member mm-hmm. without knowing it. The qualities about how you lead your life and about how you search for meaning in your life have much more to do with whether or not you're a burner, whether or not you enjoy and can really get into the magic of the Burning Man Festival than just simply attending it. And I've thought about this a lot in, in reading your books and, and listening to your podcasts and finding uh, you know, you and Daniel and Charles and, and uh, Brett on, on YouTube and through other medium. I think one of the fundamental qualities about whether or not you're a burner is whether or not you instinctively embrace the infinite game and instinctively seek the infinite game. Mm-hmm. burners and people who play the infinite game are thinking hey, well I see how that works I see how the, the path that has been conveniently laid out for me works I don't think that's all there is I'm looking for something different I'm looking for a different way of being I'm looking for gathering with others and not just thinking about a different possibility not just looking back at the texts that I read in, in college and, and replaying with those ideas, I want to actually do something. Yeah. And the beautiful part about Burning Man culture is that it's that constant permission, F, it's that constant permission engine that not just tells you, yes, you can do something, mm-hmm. but you must do something. And oh, here's a list of a hundred different things that you can try. And if one doesn't work out, move on to the next one. And if that doesn't work out, move on to the next one. And that's what Burners Without Borders does in the context of how do we preserve human civilization and how do we keep each other not just alive, but thriving as game A collapses around us, as the infinite game begins to collapse around us? How do we see the collapse and prepare for it? And it's not alluding to another thing that, that you bring up. It's not about blasting off to Mars. It's not about our seasteading community. It's not about our underground bunker. It's about how do we grow tomatoes in our backyard? Yeah, and to be clear, that critique of it's not about blasting off from us, it just got me taken off the guest list to some very fancy parties. But nonetheless, it needed to be said, right? So I somewhat felt like a little bit like Tom Wolf bouncing around like the Upper East Side, you know, with Leonard Bernstein, where he wrote about, um, you know, Mau Mau Sheik and you know, ra- Radical Sheik and the Mau Mau Flat Catchers, where he's talking about Leonard Bernstein having the Black Panthers to their parties, you know, or him hanging out with Kesey and then writing about it. I, I found myself in the last decade you know, into scenes that I have no, no business being in, being like, wait a second, this actually demands a critique. Um, even, you know, even, even if um, I could just kind of look away and, and, and show up for the, for the after party. So you've just described something really worthwhile. You just pointed out Daniel Schmachtenberger, Charles Eisenstein, Brett Weinstein, I'm assuming are some of the people you were just naming. Um, and 
this idea of like, hey, there's a finite game, like the win-lose, you know, chase the brass rings, socially defined models of success, and then something resembling the infinite game, kind of win-win, how do we play this, you know, for all of us and, and try and extend and expand the game to include as many people as we can, right? So that's James Cuss's kind of functioning definition of finite versus infinite games. And you also just discussed the challenge potentially, or you kind of imply the challenge of transitioning between them, right? Because on the one hand, you can't just like abandon winning, you know, and, and succeeding because otherwise you can't make rent and look after your family and those kind of things. And so there's kind of a couple of goofy things, which is up until quite lately, probably even still, um, the only way to exit the finite game is to win the last hand and call the next round, right? So if you win the hand of like, okay, I made bank or I achieved, you know, functionally like straight world success. Now I have the luxury to call the next better game. And it's one eye jacks and jokers are wild. And you got to stand in your head and sing a, sing a funny, funny song, right? You know, every time you play, you know, every time you play a spade, right? You're like, okay, now the, the threshold for leaving the finite game is to win at it so that you can then change the rules of the game to become increasingly infinite. That has a handful of people pull that off. Most people don't, right? It's the classic, I went to law school to try and change the law, but then along the way, I ended up with debts, school debts, you know, <laughs> school debts and loans. And I ended up getting bent by the promise of becoming made partner. And then by the time I get to the place I could have changed, I kind of forgot what I was gonna change and the system changed me, I didn't change the system, right? So that you end up with, that problem but what you're talking about and let's just transition fully over to your essay now the long disaster you're sort of saying hey the finite game is sort of imploding right now which on the one hand is horrific you know and on the hand is sort of i think what a bunch of people are secretly hoping for out of what has been called kind of covid fatigue and the great resignation and things like that are kind of pulses of people going oh for fuck's sake Right, like I am, I am frantic and freaked out by everything that my spidey senses tell me is happening, and I'm also bored, rigid, from going through the motions on this old game. Won't like, won't the wheels please at last come off? So I am finally free of that charade, and can actually step into what's next and what's most real. So, so let, let's just jump in because your long disaster essay, and we'll, we will link to it in the comments. We said it's about 1,500 to 2,000 words. My experience of this piece is that it is as close to a haiku for the apocalypse. Um, anything I've seen, like literally the density of, of actionable insights, like a diagnosis prescription, diagnosis prescription, as you move through all these categories is the best bang for buck of anything I've read. And when you talk about, you know, some of the, the, the folks, the clever people on the podcast circuit, right? I've become thoroughly burned out on that because my sense was is that mapping the problem in the, to the nth detail is effectively disaster porn. Right? And, and in fact, Tristan Harris uh, from the Social Dilemma and the Center for Humane Tech and Daniel Schmachtenberg we're just here in Austin, and this will probably be out of phase with when this comes out. But um, and they've just re recently recorded a, a Joe Rogan episode, right, on the meta crisis, right? And that was one of the main things that we were talking about as they were about to do that, which is how do we balance mapping all the problems? Because I mean, Dan one of Daniel Schmachtenberger's superpowers, right, is this incredibly lucid mapping of the meta crisis, 
And he'll be like, there's this thing that you know is fucked like climate. There's this thing that you know is fucked like culture wars. There's this thing that you know is fucked like China and geopolitics. But there's like six other things you haven't even thought about, like CRISPR and quantum AI and swarm drones and all these things. And you, you, know, you stack and you stack and you stack and you're like, oh my God, like we are screwed seven ways to Sunday. And then he's like, and education is bungled and sense-making is bungled and politics and governance and capitalist economics and all the other, and everything we are is inadequate to meeting the task of all these out, you know, impossible things. And therefore the only, like we're doomed, no doubt about it by like 12 overlapping things. And the only solution is for us to completely rebuild civilization from scratch because all of our methods of approaching this, wrapping our heads around it and dealing with it are even more screwed, right? And so I think there has been this enormous vacuum in much of the, pundit, you know, thought leader and, you know, conversations around the, the imbalance has been over diagnosing the problems in, you know, in infinite detail, complexity, and somewhat abstraction versus being like, okay, we get it. We know enough <laughs> to know the stakes. Let's roll up our sleeves and get cracking on this. And I, where I think this essay is absolutely invaluable. It is the most heartfelt but also practical and experience-based um, set of prescriptions that I've come across, right? which is why we were talking. And you know, in whatever tiny way I can, I'm going to continue um, championing and spotlighting what you guys are up to. Um, so if it's okay with you, I'd like to, it's, it's so good. And that's what I meant about like the haiku for the apocalypse is that like it's dense and I'd like to do a Socratic reading this. I'd like to just kind of like read sections or quotes that I've highlighted and then just have you speak to them. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love All to. Right. So, so the first thing you talk about is, I mean, A, the, 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 why you called it the long disaster, right? And so I think one of your first distinctions is to say, hey, doom scrolling in your newsfeed, fires, floods, you know, riots, protests, whatever, whatever. Those are sort of, they're always coming up. There's always a new one. And in fact, you know, people in California are like, it used to be one in five years we'd have to evacuate. Now it's every summer we're evacuating all kind of stuff. And they're starting to blur and blend. And you're like, that's not just our imagination or the algorithm. You say, you say, you say in fact, those of us in i.e. disaster relief, are noticing that disasters are not as discrete as they appear to be. Climate disasters, political disasters, economic disasters, and the consequences of old and new means of war are no longer isolated to a time or place. They are beginning to emerge as a single continuous event. This is the long disaster. For some, it has always been here, I'm presuming sort of global south, developing world. For the rest of us, it is soon to come. So when and how did you come to that conceptualization of the meta crisis? And, 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 and what about the sort of the, the, the poetry of that term, the long disaster? I think the genesis of the idea came when I realized in looking back on my experiences in Mexico City, what the most valuable thing I did as volunteer coordinator was. And it always shocks people when I tell them. The most valuable thing I did was telling people no. Hmm. I had a lot of different tasks in, in that particular rescue site, but the most valuable one in retrospect was when somebody from the professional rescue squad 
would hand me a cell phone and say, diles no, tell them no. Mm. Because whoever was on the other end of the line was somebody from the Mexican privileged class who was trying to get their son, daughter, nephew, second cousins, third wife to come to, to allow them entry into the site as a volunteer so that they could take their selfie on top of the rubble saying what a heroic rescuer they were so they could have it as a picture on their mantle place along with pictures mm. next to former presidents of Mexico, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason I was asked to do that was because I didn't have a boss. <laughs> in, in Mexico and in, in Mexican business culture, there's all they have to do is ask who their boss is and then find the connection through the web of connections and how to get that boss to influence that person to allow them to do the thing that they want to do. And that's the root of Mexican corruption. Ironically, a very strong sense and highly connected webs of communitas are what lead and drive a lot of that corruption in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And so I would, normalmente hablo español así, y estoy bien hablando con un acento un poquito raro, but when I would pick up the phone, I would say, oh, oh, hola, con, con quien estoy hablando? I would use that American privilege in Mexico to basically say, unless your person has certain incident command response training, I'm not going to be able to allow them to come on site. And then they'd say, they'd ask, who is your boss? Who are you working for? I'm working in coordination with USAID. Hmm. And of course, everybody on the other end of the line would switch to English. <laughs> and we'd have this conversation in English and I'd tell them, no. Mm -hmm. That's when I realized, oh, oh, this is not just a thing that's about climate change. It, it involves everything and every society, whether you're talking about, you know, the, the Roman empire, the, the Han dynasty, every great civilization reaches an inflection point where it collapses and changes. Everything has a life cycle. All, all natural things are things that emerge from natural beings. Our planet has a life cycle. The sun has a life cycle. And it's not so much about figuring out, oh, what's going to fail and how is it going to fail and how do we failures? It's about how do we become anti-fragile so that we're prepared for when things do fail and hope that they don't in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the genesis of the long disaster. Beyond that, it's a lot of community organizing. I, mm -hmm. I began my career in the hacker scene that I, I, I grew up in the country club circuit in, uh, for, or what, what exists of the country club circuit in Western Michigan. There, there are people of privilege and that's, that's actually a that funny like, thing. Like Gross Point, like that neck of the woods? Is it uh, on the other side of the state, okay. but very uh -huh. um, it, but, but, but yes, exactly. The, the East Grand Rapids where I grew up is, is considered the, the very privileged uh, school district, just like like Gross Point is on the other side of the state, but but exactly that. And my first encountering of the word privilege was again when my father was explaining to us, "Look, you are privileged. You are 
at the top, the vast majority of people, not just among your friends, but among people in the world do not have access to the same level of privilege that you do. Going to brunch on Sundays in winter at the country club is not an experience that most or even 99% of the people that you know have access to. And that's what I internalized as a sense of privilege. If you were to ask my dad today, what does privilege mean? He would say it's part of the culture wars and something that they throw against people of our ilk, et cetera, et cetera. But that acknowledgement I think is missing. Mm -hmm. the, the, what it means to be 1% and acknowledging that, you know, a lot of it comes down to luck and great fortune. And even the American experiment has been the beneficiary of a lot of luck, really good luck. Yeah, but I mean, to me, to me, I hear you, but that doesn't actually feel satisfying or fully congruent. Like, like what I experience from you and, and most particularly the organization that you're a part of, which is a whole bunch of people, mm -hmm. um, is responsibility. Not, not how do I, um, how do I sublimate privilege? It's a responsibility, like it's a privilege to get to experience the blessings and grace of the initiation, the initiatory experience at Burning Man, if you're lucky enough to have it, right? And most people just go gallivanting off into their life, right? You know, high on themselves and, 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 and the experience. You guys are actually responding. You're like, fuck, this is gold. This is incredibly precious. How do we actually, you know, ground this? And, and one of the things that strikes me here is, is you, you make, a, you make a, a statement here, which is, because I've used the, the example of like oceans and surfing and set waves, like a big bunch of waves come through. The waves don't just come in like clockwork. They come in groups called sets. And typically, um, you know, if you ride the first wave of a set and then you fall off, you turn around and there's a couple more on your head. Right. And, and it's in between sets that you have a chance to like reassemble, grab your fucking gear, like get to high ground or get back out outside the impact zone. So like the, the breaks in between sets are invaluable for learning to stay alive. And you describe something similar here. You say long disaster responders adrift and create around gaps in the present circumstances to prepare for the, the temporal crisis. Like, so you, you're sort of describing that. You're like, hey, we're always here. We're not responding to a quick hot flash in the pan. We're building community. We're establishing networks. We're doing all these things in the set breaks between the waves. How how do you guys do that in a, in a society that is almost has a crazy short attention span, instantly forgets the last thing and is always looking for the next thing? How do you maintain that kind of focus? Well, actually, let me ask it differently. Is it easier lately to maintain that kind of continuity of focus and mobilization because everybody's starting to twig on to the long disaster versus five to 10 years ago where people might have thought, whew, that was, a lot. that was a close one. Now back to our regularly scheduled tweeting. I don't think it's as much about focus as jumping on the continuum. Okay. So first part of jumping on that continuum is saying, okay, I, I am privileged, recognizing whatever your privilege is, not, not in the culture war sense, mm -hmm. in the attitude in the personal gratitude for where I am and what I am sense mm -hmm. that distinctionally hard to elucidate in these times. And that's that it's, it's about privilege is not about 
describing your place or others' places in society as much as about for me as much as it is as as much as it is about expressing a sense of gratitude, mm-hmm. and then saying what am I going to do with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how am I going to go about and approaching it? And this is this is what happens in. places like Black Rock City mm-hmm. in transformational festivals. What is the transformation that you're looking for? It's not about how do I transform myself into being a more enlightened Instagram influencer or information worker. It's how do I inform what I'm doing among my fellows? How do I take what intrinsic unique gifts that I have and better put those to service and that's that answers your question i think about focus in that it's about being hyper laser focused on doing a particular thing it's about continually creating the environments where what you do in play what you do in social gatherings art projects and the construction of art projects is one example Mm-hmm. Uh, coming together and creating hackerspaces or makerspaces, even just sharing your tools with your neighbor or mm-hmm. noticing, saying, hey, Bill, I noticed that your lawn is a little bit long. You know, would you like me to cut that for you? Another thing, another concept behind the long disaster, which, which is more in the conclusion than anywhere else, is that you can't continue to live without the sense of hope. It's the Stockdale paradox. Yeah. That concept, the concept of, and, and maybe you're much more eloquent at explaining that than I am. Well, just in a, you know, 30 seconds, Admiral Jim Stockdale, Vietnam POW, longest serving POW, highest ranking. So he got a rough shit and scrutiny, realized that the pessimists didn't survive in the prison camps because they didn't believe, but neither did the optimists. That's the key insight um, because they always believed they were going to be out at some point. And when the point came and went, then they were just collapsed. And so his paradox was the only way to survive or the best way to survive is to be ruthlessly realistic about short-term realities while remaining relentlessly optimistic about long-term possibilities. And that's a critical thread that's behind the long disaster and behind a lot of my thinking in that you have to be very aware of what's happening right now when you're building your communities in times of of relative ease and in times of crisis and that you have to address what is in front of you. The joy that is incredibly hard to explain that just by referencing it, people who have experienced it know exactly what I'm talking about and people who haven't have are, are totally befuddled by it, comes out of that sense of emergent community. When you move to a place, when you join a suburb, when you go to college or when you join a workplace, those are fixed communities. You you are joining something that is there. It is not an emergent community. Emergent community is something that really only comes out of some kind of crisis. And this is why people who go to Black Rock City assume that everybody around them is good. And, and want to have an interaction. 
one of the differences between Black Rock City and say a New York City or a San Francisco is that when the average person approaches you in Black Rock City, the presumption is that this is an interaction I'm going to want to have. In an emergent community, whether you're wandering the countryside in Japan or whether you're at a, at, at, at a relief center in, after an earthquake in Mexico City, is that when you approach somebody, you will be welcome. When somebody approaches you, you will welcome them. Mm-hmm. When a stranger approaches you in New York City, you are immediately defensive. You automatically assume this person is trying to extract something from me that I am not ready or prepared to give them. Mm-hmm. And that's true. A lot of the people who are hitting you up for money or asking you to sign a petition or asking you to do a thing are approaching you with a very solid fixed goal in mind. And that I think is the critical difference. What we're trying to do at Burners Without Borders and what a lot of people are are already doing. Burners Without Borders, I think is, is much more of, it's much more of a benevolent priesthood than it is a disaster relief organization. (laughs) And and what I mean when I say that is that, yes, Burners Without Borders provides toolkits and Burners Without Borders provides a lot of the different things, but a lot of the people who fly the Burners Without Borders flag work in the same way that Gnostic Christians work. I'm just sharing my experience with you. I'm just here to listen about your experience. I'm here to help encourage you as a fellow human being to go create communities and to, and to talk about things in ways. I'm not here to sell you something. I'm not, Burners Without Borders is not there to weaponize you. Burners Without Borders is there to explain a certain thing, to give you certain toolkits for you to create communities on your own and give you a flag to fly for people who really need you to have a flag. Well, every Burners Without Borders community is different. Every Burners Without Borders community is perfect in a way that it responds to the needs of the people who assemble around that particular fire. And a lot of what Burners, that, that joy comes from creating art. The most meaningful projects that Burners Without Borders does are essentially art projects. Yes, most and, of right. I, 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 yeah. I, I, I for, for listeners, I also because you, you, you offered a disclaimer when you talked about the Caldor fire in Tahoe, and you said people might think that we were. I was jumping in with my crew, chainsaw chopping fire breaks and that kind of stuff. Really, I was on a Zoom call, effectively bearing witness, like you described the sort of the Gnostic Christian, the, the sort of benevolent priesthood thing. But the flip side is, you guys absolutely roll up your sleeves and do hard shit. And and in particular in this essay, you you know you you talk about ham radios you talk about like resilient and redundant communications like that's important like weirdly old school like almost cb radios but like can can you communicate around the world because the moment the internet goes down everybody's fucked as far as their normal modes and you say in a practical sense learning how to operate heavy equipment build structures forage and cultivate food practice emergency medicine harness renewable energy and develop other practical skills gained through service and study are are just some of the applicable suggestions right you talk about maker spaces where people aggregate toolkits everything from 3d 3d printers to lathes and bandsaws and you know various other fabrication devices so i one of the things i find so 
profoundly refreshing about your guys' stance is that you are hey, saying, hey, deconditioned zoo animals, you know, it's time to go and learn and share and teach each other rapidly a whole bunch of practical skills that may have atrophied in that, you know, we'll use these placeholders of middle, middle America and the bike, you know, the, the two coasts purely as placeholders, you know, mix and match. But like that idea of you've been living above the neck and on your phone way the hell too long. And there's a whole bunch of things we all need to know how to do. Stat to be useful. And let's get started with that stuff too. It, it, there's a bunch of different threads in there. It's not that everybody needs to learn how to operate heavy machinery to take mm -hmm. that example, but somebody in your community probably should be versed enough in how heavy machinery works to be able to use it. And where are you going to get the opportunity to operate heavy machinery in your normal life if you're an office slash information worker? Probably in Black Rock City where there's heavy machinery, heavy machinery lying around, but heavy machinery that's used to move containers, to create artwork, help theme camps construct. And it's not that we're going to make, and granted, Burning Man probably is, in, in Black Rock City, probably produces many more heavy machinery operators out of office workers mm -hmm. than any other place on, on the planet. Yeah, and, or any and other welders, single source. like metal fabric. There's all kinds of fun things. Well, well look at the Iron Monkeys in Seattle who have been building, who have been welding and creating forges and doing a lot of this very practical work to create art projects at Burning Man. Mm -hmm. And once you know how to weld together lots of pieces of scrap metal, once you know exactly how an arc welder works, once you've worked a flame torch, once you've seen the different kinds of solder and how different materials react under different conditions for very low stakes, mm -hmm. you're prepared to do it and to know what those things like. And not just that, but are prepared to teach it and joyfully teach it that this is what we do when we get together in communities. We teach each other how to weld. We teach each other how to operate equipment. Mm -hmm. We show people the difference between the physics and around beers talk about that one time that I tipped a thing with a VR because I was treating it like a forklift. Yeah. And, and also, right, not just utility, right? The idea that most fabrications that show up on the playa as some part of a camp or an art project are also whimsical and beautiful, right? So that's a layer of culture that often gets missed. In fact, and quite often, if you're talking about like middle America, like industrial kind of blue collar, that's often something that got eclipsed in the industrial age, right? So that idea of like guilds and crafts and the fact that, you know, you look at the embellishments on medieval churches and you're like, how in the fuck did anybody ever have the time to make it that beautiful, you know? And so there is this kind of beautiful full circle for Burning Man fabrication slash skilled, you know, uh, remembering, which is there's beauty and play. There's art. The purpose is joy and delight, not raw functionality. And I don't remember whether it was White Lotus or I think it, I, I think it might have been them, but I think it was predominantly a women-led Oakland workshop makerspace slash Burning Man camp. The and they actually, space. yeah, and they even had some rules, like fundamentally to prevent mansplaining, like fundamentally, like come in be humble, look around, ask for help, 
don't assume you know more than someone who's been here longer. There's kind of all these really good guidelines to also kind of subvert conventional gender roles around heavy industry industry and stuff like that. But I just, it was kind of a, it was a really, I thought it was one of the nicest, like you've, we've seen the pathological version of this in the last few years in the culture wars of like mansplaining and intersectionality and decentering and this and that. And there's a usually kind of like to chop people down and kind of, you know, divide and silence. But this, this workers cooperative, right. was actually really playful about it. It was like, yeah, we probably, you know, like, Hey dude, coming in, you're probably going to feel some need to be an expert here, but you're probably not, you know, <laughs> and here's ways to still like, you know, support the little boy in you that's curious and would like to become competent without you becoming a mansplaining asshat, you know? And like, so it just seemed like a really neat kind of cultural rebalancing that also was still, you know, still inviting. It, you know? But which is also very necessary because what does everything about being a prototypical man, even when you've never picked up a hammer in your life, Everything in American culture incentivizes manly men to think that they know, or at least to give off the vibe that they know how to do all of these things when they probably don't. One of the things about blue collar existence was that learned humility that I think we're missing and that you don't really get to be good at anything until you failed quite a bit at it, until that thing has humbled you. And of, of all of the experiences that were missing, that, that humbling, which happens in hackerspaces and makerspaces in these fears, that burning man in Black Rock City will humble you. And from that position of humility, you can build skills and really get good at things having been humbled by your experiences. Uh, another weird thing that we're, we're seeing a lot and that I, I see a lot in even the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, perhaps one of the most salt of the earth, know, know how to change your tires, know how to work a snowmobile and heavy equipment places that we're seeing in the kids is that they don't want to learn how to do any of these things. The kids mm. are just as in their phones and in their, their handheld games and their PlayStations as the sons and daughters of office workers in major metros. Yeah. That, and that is a distressing point. Well, the ubiquity of social media culture means that even if you are in a rootsy place anywhere around the world at this point, you are nonetheless keeping up with the Kardashians and following the latest TikTok dance. So there is a decoupling of what are the signs and signifiers of youth culture that you perceive as valuable and worthy of emulation and the actual on the ground realities and community and competencies that you might actually need to thrive where you live. It, it, and there's, there's, there's costs and there's benefits to that. I think having, having grown up sort of on the, on the cusps of that, that era is that there is value and joy in being able to find communities that you would not have access to absent it being in your phone through TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, whatever it is, that, that people find what they like and what resonates with them intrinsically as a human being much earlier than probably you or I, I mm. did. It took us having to go to college, to go to Grateful Dead shows or, to, or, or whatever it was. 
to find out where where we landed, what cultural thing resonated with us. Now, verbal six-year-olds find out what it took us probably till 26 to figure out. And I think there's there's definite value in that. But getting back to the long disaster, what what we need to do and what Burners Without Borders does is create not just the impetus for doing these things, but creates, not just provides the permission engine, but provides the entry points for being, and, and not just the entry points, but creates inviting entry points. You're not joining an art project because we need you to swing a hammer. You're joining a party of people who by coincidence are getting together to swing hammers and build an art project. The perfect it's example it's, it's is- psych psychedelic bond raisings. Like, yes, like you're, you're... It, 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 it's, it's, yes, it is psychedelic barn raisings where we actually raise a barn of some kind at the end. Mm -hmm. And know and how to- And we burn safely. the barn, we burn the barn. Well, well we yes, we build the barn to burn it. And, yes. and we got something more fun than beer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so, so all those things and which, which to me, to me, you know, I mean, and, and I'm always hesitant to adopt these nerdy terms, but like the stranger tractor of disaster, triumph and disaster. We've talked about peak experiences. You feel alive. Also, weirdly, we also feel super alive in disasters. The banal, the mundane, right, where scrolling through our phones and aping shit on TikTok and, and Twitter lives is intrinsically undersatisfying. We're dying for a chance to really feel alive and really feel connected. And, and weirdly, that balance, the triumph and the disasters the, of what you're talking about are much stronger pulls than being stuck on the hamster wheel, right? That most people you know, in the modern world find themselves trapped on. I, I, wanna, I wanna leave us and, and kind of give you the, the final words here um, in, in taking a look at what you say at the end. Cause you say something earlier in the idea of like, almost that we're sort of, we are, we're death doulas, right? On the one in this long disaster, we are, we are bearing witness to the collapse of a bunch of things. And that is fundamentally a hospice play, right? How do we ease the pain and the suffering of that which cannot persist? And on the other hand, we're birth doulas, right? Like as Socrates said, we're midwives of the soul and we are birthing potentially, right? Something new. And in your conclusion, you say, as such, we future long disaster responders should be encouraged not to ask others to make us, but to make ourselves along with those around us where we live. Any of us can start doing something today. So speak to that. We, 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 you teed this up at the very beginning. It's what I end Recapture the Rapture with, which is this notion of radical hope, right? And clearly you're coming from like I've said, I think the most pragmatic and inclusive perspective. You've got dyed-in-the-wool preppers who are like, get your shit together and, and stock hand goods and string razor wire around the perimeter and get ready. So you've got, you've got people without an expansive love and joy, right, who are hunkering down and almost hoping for the wheels to come off. So they are effectively kind of dancing on the grave of Western civilization, waiting for it to happen. But you've struck a balance between the pragmatism of real world nitty gritty 3D and the sort of transcendentalism, right? Of transformational festivals, ecstatic peak experiences and that kind of thing. How does this in you as radical hope, which Jonathan Lear, University of Chicago defined that term. He said, he said, radical hope isn't 
simply hoping for the ship to right itself and us to get back to quote unquote normal. Radical hope is a belief. This is Stockdale paradox, right? It is a belief that we cannot see from here, right? But are none the, nonetheless leave to be true, right? And, and over the horizon. So bring this home for us. The long disaster, long disaster responders and the centrality, if I'm not putting words in your mouth, the centrality of radical hope in that project. One thing behind the long disaster is that I believe I'm describing an emergent phenomenon. This is not proscriptive, it's descriptive. I'm describing something that I see happening around me, something that I believe naturally emerges that is a part of the human condition. I'm not, I'm not prescribing something as much as I'm describing what I have seen succeed. And which leads me to the second point in all of this is that I've done enough disaster response to know that it is impossible to predict the failure condition and prepare for every possible failure condition. And anti-fragility is a very important through concept in the long disaster is not about thinking of every way and preparing for every contingency. It's about being prepared to take the hits that you can't see coming mm -hmm. and yeah. come and learn something from those things. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean uh, go ahead. Surviving the long disaster is not about preparing for everything as much as it is about preparing to work with others to survive together. And in that preparation, if you're doing it right, there is an incredible joy. There is an incredible collective peak state that you have to go through. You have to meet lots of different people and try lots of different things and fail and keep failing and keep going through that heartbreak of friendships gained and friendships lost to find the people once you've found them you experience that joy every time you get together. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, as you're describing that, you're describing, hey, this kind of, you can't plan for the, the, the unraveling. It's going to happen in some way and you need to be able to be, you need to respond, you need to adapt. And that, but the planning for it is essential. Plans yeah. are worthless. Planning the process is essential. Yeah. And, and, and that reminds me of something like our, our wilderness EMT uh, trainer who was a Everest doc you know, basically said, you know, as we're going through our jump bags and he's like, the most important piece of medical equipment you have is between your ears, right? It's, it's your mind to stay present and to be resourceful. I hear you throughout this describing with Bunnies Without Borders and what your last story beautifully says is it's also between our ribs, right? It's our heart. So it is our head and our heart. And our heart is what connects us in care to our fellow responders and also to anybody who we're helping. And, it, and it's how we get this done. And you know, to your point, when we connect head and heart in triumph and disaster, right? we are most alive. We are, we are most rewarded and affirmed. So hopefully uh, that can give folks this connection because there's been so much talk in the last few years about the meta crisis and 99% of it stops short of actually credible, plausible solutions. We're really good at mapping the shit show. We're next to nowhere on shining a path forwards. And you guys are blazing that trail. 
and hopefully people can feel this and hear this, which is that learning skills, learning, this doesn't have to become a collapse into fear. This doesn't have to be a slip slide into pre prepping, right? This can be an expansion of capacity, competency, community, care, and concern. And that ultimately this is our way forward. Um, so you said it earlier, you said, hey, there are many burners that may not have ever burning now there are many burners without borders that might not realize but you already are a member of this community if you identify with this mission and so um you know please just share with us um we're gonna we will link um to burners without borders but is it, is it bwob.org what is the url for you guys as an org burners i <laughs> Let's just say I'm Google. not certain off the top of my head. I believe yeah. it's burnerswithoutborders.org, which okay. links to right links to that. And and my the, this essay is at thelongdisaster.org. Perfect. Um, so so as a as a fellow traveler, um, thank you, thank you guys for doing the hard work and also just taking the time. You said many in your community have kind of dodged the spotlight or the platforms. You show up when it's service of advancing the mission. This essay is a beautiful distillation. Uh, we will not only post a link to it, but I, we will post it in long form to our community as well. And, and thank you for taking time away from those efforts uh, to spotlight what's possible and to share a roadmap for the rest of us. You're, you're most welcome. This is an amazing experience and I, I hope we get a chance to, to chat again very soon. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.